Hey guys, Michael Cohen here, and welcome into the very first episode of my new podcast called Cohen's Corner. Some of you guys might remember me from my time in Green Bay, where I covered the Green Bay Packers from 2015 through 2018. I had a couple of podcasts while I was out there, most recently the P60 Packers podcast when I was at The Athletic, and prior to that at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, I had the Packers podcast with colleagues Tom Silverstein and Bob McGinn. I left Green Bay in June of 2019 and moved to Washington, D.C. for a job with D.C. United. Unfortunately, that job didn't work out, and a few months later, I needed to look for something new. And that search keeps going, and it keeps going at a time when a lot of us are looking for something to do, looking for something fun, looking for a distraction. And so I decided to start this podcast because I thought it would be something that might be able to brighten somebody's day. Now, this won't be specific to the Green Bay Packers like some of my prior work was. This is just going to be something that I hope is really enjoyable, and the format is going to be pretty simple. Let's find interesting people, whether it's writers, whether it's players, whether it's coaches, whoever in the sporting world across all different sports, and let's just tell fun stories. Let's talk about, you know, old war stories from the draft room. Let's talk about some of the favorite games we ever covered, some of the more interesting athletes we've ever been around. Just things that are fun and simple and laid back and, you know, hopefully at a time when everybody is home and and staying safe as the COVID-19 virus continues to, you know, strap the the United States in in all different corners and all different manners. You know, hopefully it's just something that will brighten somebody's day. And so this very first episode has one of the most interesting figures I've ever interviewed, and that is former NFL head coach Jerry Glanville. Now, for those of you that don't know Jerry Glanville, he's 78 years old and still coaching, most recently as the defensive coordinator of the Tampa Bay Vipers in the XFL. But his resume begins all the way back in the late 1960s when he got his first job as the defensive coordinator at Western Kentucky in 1967. Soon enough, early 70s, he broke into the NFL, and from the early 70s all the way through the 90s, he was serving various roles across the NFL. Defensive coordinator, defensive backs coach, defensive coordinator, defensive backs coach again. Then he was the head coach of the Houston Oilers from 1985 to 89, and then the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons from 1990 to 93. His life only got more interesting from there. He did a stint as a broadcaster with CBS. He became a auto racing driver. Uh, He eventually got back into coaching. And again, at 78 years old, he was most recently serving as the defensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Vipers. And when you think about, you know, sort of that old school football guy that can just tell story after story after story, Jerry Glanville is that guy. So this is my interview with Jerry Glanville. We just wanted to have a good time, had some fun, and I hope that you guys will enjoy it too. Again, thank you so much for uh, for helping me out with uh, with as long as you've been around the game. It's always fun to talk with you, and I appreciate that. What I was curious about is uh, how did everything get started with the the situation in the XFL deciding to shut down? Where were you? What was going on? And what was that like? We had a practice on Wednesday. We were going to play uh, St. Louis, who runs a real good offense. In fact, their quarterback I just saw signed with, I think, Kansas City Chiefs yesterday. Uh, 2A or Taui, a Hawaiian kid that played at Ole Miss. We had a hell of a practice. You know, we set our game plan in, had a great practice, and uh, everybody's ready to go. And uh, that evening, as we're getting ready to do third and long, we did uh, first and 10, second down. And the next day, we'd have done third down defense. Uh, We got called up and said that. uh, shutting it down we'd have a team meeting on thursday 
and they'd tell the team, and I've never met Vince McMahon, but uh, he's got to be a special guy. He, he, he paid every player. Uh, you know, a lot of times when these things shut down and close, especially when you're startup, that's the end of uh, your salary where he flew everybody back home. And uh, he, I, I never met the guy, but if I do, I'm going to kiss him on the forehead. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly worked out, you know, better for players and coaches than the AAF did last year. And so, you know, for, for somebody like you that had done this for so long and you were just getting back into it, was it was it a letdown or did you kind of understand that at this point in time it's it's necessary for the country? Well, we didn't know at that time that the center uh, at uh, uh, Seattle was then tested positive, the offensive center. Gotcha. So once you hear that, uh, then it's much bigger than the game. It's it's, it's time to uh, protect everybody. So uh, at the time, we didn't know there was any players, but there's players in other leagues that were, were – uh, you know, being tested positive. So, uh, I just, uh, I, I wonder now about the college season and the NFL season, really. Uh, if, uh, we don't get a, a shot that can protect you, I don't know where we'll end up gathering in large crowds. Uh, I'm gathering in my room above the garage, you know? Yeah. You, you were mentioning last night, last night I went to, uh, Yesterday afternoon, I met a high school coaching staff, and I, I I like the clinic and help anybody we can in high school coaching. But we all stayed six feet away from each other, and I met them in their field house, and they sprayed their field house down. They, he said, Coach, I've sanitized it twice if you'll come teach us. So I was over there with a half a dozen coaches at uh, Farragut High School yesterday, and then, then uh, uh, they got up and talked, and I always see what I can learn. And what they were doing, I came home as a coach, and I've been uh, really laying in the bed, drawing in a spiral notebook, trying to add some of their good things they were doing to some of the things we were doing. Yeah, you and mentioned that's what coaches do. That's yeah, you mentioned uh, you mentioned your current project is trying to defend the empty formation. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Uh, I thought it was going to be, I thought the big thing because of the Rams. Uh, this time, a year ago, I was uh, studying how to beat uh, what we call the bunch because uh, the Rams had had success with all the wide receivers real close to each other. That's called the bunch next to the tackle. Sure. So I, I know I've been around long enough to know this thing. Everybody copies somebody that has success. So this time a year ago, I was working on stopping the bunch. And uh, in the XFL, the bunch was not copied. It was not big at all. It was almost no bunch. But as people kept trying to move the football on us and could not, we became uh, defending the empty formation. So I'm really, I stayed up to 4 o'clock because I got nowhere to get up and go to anyway. I stayed up to four o'clock in the morning before I put the empty formation to bed. That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. What What is it that keeps you going at, at 78? Why do you want to stay up till 4 a.m. and keep doing this? Well, I, I love teaching, you know. Coaches are teachers. And, uh, you know, why would I meet with a high school coaching staff yesterday afternoon? 
by the way, we had our lunch catered in because all the restaurants were closed. We got a chicken salad sandwich on toast. I drank about three sprites, <laughs> and uh, and and I taught them, I taught them how to win on rundown and how to win on pass down. And if one guy learns one thing and you made him better, you've had a great day. It's very true. That's very true. What did you think of the the level of play overall in the XFL this season? You had been, if I if I'm remembering correctly, you had been out of football the 2019 season doing some studying on your own, and then you got back in with the XFL with the Tampa Bay Vipers. What did you think of the well, league that, and and the level of competitiveness and all that? Well, the year before I was in Canada, right with I Hamilton. Was, I was at Hamilton, so I had that. It, 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 it reminded me a lot of the Canadian football. Uh, what I found that we had, because uh, we didn't have any players, so we had to do the study and draft our players. And the players that we brought in, uh, I got to say this to everybody that worked on the draft, we brought in the right people. We had, uh, we not only had good players, we had uh, a, a high level of football intelligence. So we were allowed to do things that, uh, you know, most most places can't do because uh, the way we call the defense, they have to make uh, they have to make the adjustments to the formation and to the personnel that the offense is setting up. And as we stayed together, we got smarter and smarter. You know, I never thought uh, Oliver Luck was at our Seattle game in that halftime. Seattle had rushing and passing combined. They had like 11 yards, and, and I can make those t-shirts here. You, you're still, you're still doing that. As well, that'll never happen again. Well, the next week we played uh, a DC who had a real good football team. Yep. And the second half against DC, I don't know if you saw, we gave up running and passing a total of 12 yards. Well, to do that, you've got to have players and you've got to have intelligence. And I tell them this, as a coach, I never made a tackle, I never hit anybody, and I never made an uh, on-field adjustment. All that has to come from them. And so I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I thought I thought we gang tackle. I thought the open field tackling in the league was was uh, a, a little bit above the XFL. The XFL has quit tackling and gone to cutting, try to cut you down rather than tackle you down. I thought we tackled better uh, than the NFL, uh, and we we were small. Everybody thought they could run the football on us because we were the smallest defense. But we we picked these people because we could run. Right. Uh, for instance, a lot of people had three hundred twenty pound defensive tackles, where our defensive tackles are going to be two seventy, two sixty. So you know, almost like you know, defensive ends in a four three almost. We our defensive ends were what we in the NFL would be an outside linebacker. Yep. And I and I sort of got that that good feeling when I was in Canada. That's what they do in Canada because of the width of the field. And then everybody was shook up in the XFL. They're going to have the twenty second clock rather than forty. Well, being in Canada, that's what they had. So none of that stuff bothered us. We moved on. And I can remember D.C. said, we're going to come in there and run the ball, stick the ball on them, the smallest team in the league. They're also the only team that uses five DBs full-time, and we're going to stick it on them. What running and passing for the entire game 
they average 1.4 yards of play. That'll well, do it. That'll work <laughs> for your defense. <laughs> well, now, why, well, how could we do that? We can run, and we're smart, and we chase, and we hit. All those things have nothing to do with me. All those things are, are what you know the players are bringing to the party. And uh, it was it was fun to be around, without question. You know, I've had great defensive teams. One time we gave up Tampa Bay Buccaneers 43 total yards. And I thought, wow, that was something. Well, we, we reached that level two, three times uh, this year. Reached the same, played the same way. Uh, so when you can do that, uh, you, you know, and you work with, you work with, uh, here's 25 kids and to see them get better, that makes you, when I get out of bed, I never walk to the bathroom. I run. <laughs> I got, I, I'm going to have a great day. You know, it's going to be an awesome freaking day. So then, you know, when you're working with coaches and when you're doing coaching yourself, you know, are you still running the same stuff from way back at the beginning of your career, you know, back in, you know, the, the 60s and 70s when you first broke into college football in the NFL? I was with the Falcons, 1977. So people say, do you still run what you ran? Because they've got a plaque in the Hall of Fame, 129-point club. And nobody can name a player. You can't name a player that was on that group. But the fun was coaching those guys the way they played. And, and people say, are you still running that same defense? Each year, it has to evolve with what's going on. Each year, it has to change. Each year, you tweak it and turn it. And I think if you looked at 77 and looked at this year, you know, that's a lot of years of tweaking. So it's still uh, big picture, yes, that's what we do. But uh, in reality, uh, when they make the change on offense, which was the bunch formation with the Rams. Remember how everybody thought the Rams were the next coming? Sure. And, and then this year they couldn't get a first down. Well, there's a reason, because everybody did what I did on the empty. You go to work to stop the bunch. And I worked on this time a year ago. You, if you'd have called, so what are you doing, Coach? I'm stopping the bunch. <laughs> and what are you doing this year, Coach? I'm stopping empty. So what's next? What's the next thing you have to stop? Well, in our league, I think it's, you could have two forward passes. We did not have to defend one, but I think it's a weapon. So I think I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to go study. In our league, we had some rules that were were different, but the league was over in five weeks. Like, like I love our kickoff coverage. I don't know if you saw our kickoff. Of course, coverage. yep. Our, our kickoff coverage is so smart. The NFL, if they'd swallow their pride, they'd say, we're going to do exactly what the XFL did. I can't see them saying that, but they should because – in the NFL, people aren't aware of this. I mean, they've met and talked about eliminating kickoffs. Yeah. And then uh, people aren't aware of it. Average fan is not aware of it. This is not new for the NFL. NFL's been talking about this kickoff thing for seven years. Right. And then we jump in there and show them a way to do it. I just hope they say, and everybody, by the way, all the fans, everybody loves the way we do the kickoffs. And you stopped what I call full-speed contact, 60-yard sprint contact is what you've stopped. And, and you still have a good play. You still have to make the tackle. You still have to make the block without the 60-yard sprint contact. So I like that. I like the extra point thing. Uh, 
the toughest part about the extra point is they cover up what personnel they're coming in there. So they've got they got nine guys ready to go on the extra point. And then off the bench late will come maybe two tight ends or it could be two wideouts. So you, you don't have time to, gotcha. to get matched up. So I, I found that was a challenge on the extra points because they're so smart, they don't show you what personnel is going to be in the game. Well, would you would you call anything differently knowing that you know a team can score eight or nine points in one possession as opposed to maybe a touchdown and two point conversion or nine points used to always be a two a two score game in the NFL? Oh yeah, I think I think it, and here's what here's what people here you'll be the first to write this. It changes whether you're punting or not. Uh, it's such a penalty that if you put in the end zone, the ball comes. They got rules where the ball comes right back out. So you'll see more fourth down tries in the, NX, in the XFL than anywhere, because in the NFL, if I punt in the end zone, ball's coming to twenty, right? Well, if I punt it in the end zone, there's all kinds of rules. That ball could come all the way back to thirty-five. So if it's balls at the thirty-nine and it's fourth down, they go for it. Yeah, mine as well. Yeah, why why screw around? So uh, all those things uh, I think make the, uh, the I think the people that watch the game love it. I was with all these high school coaches from Tennessee yesterday. They never missed a game. They they just because they they, they love the football, and it's fast football. I think uh, I think if you can't run, if you're big and you're and you can't move around, and then they were so smart on penalties, they were smarter than the NFL ever would be, and it would kill the AAF. I tried to watch the AAF, and every penalty a flag came out. Right. Well, in the XFL, that flag didn't come out unless it took it changed the play. You're the right tackle. Are you ready? You grab my end, but it's a sweep off to the left. Right. There's no flag, and people have, people don't realize that's why they they love the game. The game keeps moving. The game, they go play the game. The penalty has to affect the play, if that makes sense to you. No, it definitely makes sense. And I would I would think that, you know, for offensive linemen, that's probably a, a very welcome change because how many times, you know, do, do casual fans turn on the television and, you know, you see a run in one direction and it's 30 yards down the field and then the flag gets thrown for the offensive lineman or the tight end on the other side of the formation who just grabbed somebody. And so I think if you're a blocker up front, that's got to be a, a very welcome change, no? And a huge, I think it's even bigger uh, for the fan. Right. The fan isn't watching all these freaking flags. He, he saw the 37-yard run, looks at the guy next to him and says, that's a hell of a run. Rather than say, well, that's coming back, to tight end on the other side uh, through a, a hook around the linebacker, you know? So you... Uh, so- in fact, I said something in the XFL I've never said in my life, and I didn't tell you about this. Uh I was standing next to a female official. She was right to my right. And the right tackle from the other team jumped before the snap. And she reached for her flag. And I said, and then, bam, the team we were playing ran off to our right. And we knocked them down. They only gained about a yard. And I said, you saw what I saw. You saw him jump. And you reach for your flag, and you didn't throw your flag. And I know you saw what I saw. This is on the sideline. Game's going on. Yep. 
she looked at me and she says, it had no effect on the play, therefore I didn't throw my flag. And I looked at her, I said, I'm going to tell you something I've never told an official in my entire life. And she looked at me, she goes, what's that? I says, I think I love you. (laughs) (laughs) That happened in the game. That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. I can't can't picture any NFL coaches saying that to referees anymore. No, no, me, of all people, I, I fought so many referees. I fought referees for 35 years. That's pretty good. But I'm curious, what did you think were some of the best positions in terms of talent, NFL-level talent, and what were some of the weaker positions? Well, there's there's two things that make pro football, and probably college football. And I call it there's quarterbacks and cornerbacks. If you got corners, you can do whatever you want to do, and you shut people down. You can't hide corners that can't play, and you can't hide quarterbacks that can't play. And I go down in the pregame warm-up and watch the enemy's quarterback throw and see what he has live that I didn't see on the film. And, like, I went down. I can't think. You have to look at the guy's name. He's from Troy State. So I go down in the Seattle pregame warm-up, and this guy throws like Jim Kelly. Well, you, you go down a pregame warm-up and you watch the quarterback from L.A. and you wish you never watched them. They're that good. They can turn the ball that good. And I have rules. If you if I see you throw a corner out on the money in pregame warm-up, that changes how I'm going to call the game. Really? That so so that, that quickly before kickoff, you could change something you want to do? Oh, I change it. I change things right there by by what I see the quarterback being able to turn and release. And when I went to Canada, uh, people in the NFL said, geez, I like it. They guess what? Everybody has a quarterback here that can play. I said, in Canada, some of them got two or three of them that can play. And the XFL, the quarterbacks, can turn the ball. They can spin the ball and they can throw it. So that's why the game is going to be successful. Now, we lost two quarterbacks. I saw Houston's quarterback left and and, and St. Louis's quarterback left. Now, the Ram quarterback is probably the best quarterback. I mean, not the Ram. The L.A. Uh, until I've been in the NFL too long. The L.A. quarterback is so good, but they won't come get him because he's probably too old, you know. But he may be the best quarterback there, but they didn't go after him. They go after the young guys. NFL is very fussy about Canadian players, and they'll probably be the same way with XFL. NFL, people don't know this. 29 and over, you can be the best player in Canada. They're not coming after you. you got to be under that magic number. So I think they'll probably do the same. They say they're going to sign 80 of our players. Well, the, I would put all my money that I just lost in the market and say none of them will be over 29. And that's why the quarterback from L.A., Josh Johnson, the former NFL quarterback, probably won't get a second chance because he's 33, even though he was one of the better players in the league. They're not going to go back and get him. They'll go back and get the young Hawaiian kid at at uh, uh, St. Louis, and they'll go get June Jones' kid at Houston because they're 25, you know. That makes a lot of sense. But what about on the defensive side of the ball? What positions did you think were stronger or weaker there? Well, I, I think what surprised people is the the defenses can run. 
So uh, they couldn't run like ours, but they can run. Uh, they can run like NFL teams now. Uh, some teams went big, and New York went huge. Uh, some people had huge defensive linemen like LA. Well, they don't run like like we want ours to run. But uh, I was impressed with the open field tackling in the league. Uh, I was impressed with what I call the want to. You know, do you really want to get there? Are you really chasing? Do you really want to make the play? We had a good want to. We had a high want to level. People are after you, tracking you. And we didn't have uh, silly hitting penalties that changed the game that you see every day in the NFL and college football. We didn't have the, uh, uh, you know, head-to-head contact, you're out of the game. We didn't have any of that, uh, which was a relief, I think, for the viewer. Yeah, I agree. I, I watched the first couple of weekends of it, and, and I was actually impressed. I thought the level of play was higher than I expected. I thought the quarterback play was a little bit better. And then I think, you know, maybe you disagree with me, and, and certainly you know a lot more about this than I do, but I, I kind of think in these startup leagues, what sort of makes it and breaks it on the offensive side is more of the offensive line play because, you know, God doesn't put that many super talented, super athletic 320-pound men on this earth and there's only so many of them. And so I kind of feel like if, if the teams that maybe had, you know, a little bit of a smidgen better offensive line, those are the ones that were going to succeed more just because that's a hard place to find depth. Do you agree or am I off base there? I was, I was pleasantly surprised on how good the O lines, uh, performed. Okay. Now they're smart enough. They don't put them one on one. So uh, they'll run other protection schemes uh, that they'll slide and help them. Uh, for instance, that guy over right over your nose, uh, you're the left guard. Uh, you're sliding. You're sliding to the left. The guy right over your nose is the centers. He's not yours. But you'll put your inside hand and get your inside stick him as you slide outside for the next outside gap. So uh, anything that they lacked, and I think Houston's a great example. Uh, they're so well coached. And uh, I don't know if any of those guys would get a chance to go to the NFL. But the way they're coached and the way that they orchestrate, it looks like they're all on one string. looks like you're in New York on Broadway watching the dancers. Everything, everything is perfect. And... Uh, for that reason, I think they play above their ability in the O-line. I think they give you harder problems defensively to get pressure in there because they're not stuck on one pass coverage. That makes sense. That makes sense. What did you find yourself running the most defensively? Like, in other words, when you went into the season, if you thought, okay, we're gonna pr- these are probably going to be our primary base coverages, did that end up holding true, or did you find yourself changing a lot based on you know how the league unfolded since it was brand new? They, uh, our number one third down call, which is second down in Canada. And I don't know if you know, you know, this year in the XFL, we had 40, 44 third downs, all yardage distance. And they made four for the whole freaking year. So we're pretty good. But we could not play what was number one in Canada because the coaches here had a better scheme on beating us. Uh, we tried to play the same, and I, I got chased in this. We had to play something else to be good. 
But in and and to counteract that, the second best call I had was my number two call in Canada. So that held pretty steady. Pretty steady, but the first call changed draft. The first call went from a zone that I had to play a, a, a cover one combo to win in the XFL. Interesting, interesting. So for somebody that has as much experience as you do, is it still, um, is it a fun challenge and a unique challenge to still have to think on the fly and, and change things and adapt as opposed to just kind of lining up maybe what you've done for the majority of your career? You're still innovating and still thinking? Well, the fun is we change right on the sideline. Remember I told you we had football intelligence. Yep. So when we're, we're not in there, you probably don't get to see on TV. Not one of our players or myself sees our offensive play. We I've never seen an offensive play. And we go right down there and make the correction. And we teach them. I have a guy standing next to me. The backup defensive tackle is standing next to me. He alternates. Whoever's not in the game stands next to me, and the game's going on. And I'll make a call. I'll say, uh, uh, give me a Utah. And the guy standing next to me says, coach, the tackle hinged. And I'll look at him. Just now, he goes to tackle hinge. Well, I'm not going to run Utah anymore. I'm going to switch over to Nevada. But we coach the players to the point where they have to tell me, we don't want to find out the day after game that they switched the blocking. We want to find out as the play. And I know they switched the blocking, the very play they switch it, because I have players studying that position. That's pretty smart. It almost sounds like a collaborative process a little bit. Oh, I t- I, here's what I tell them. If, if, by the time we get to the stadium, if I'm coming off the bus and drop dead, I don't think one call, one play, one thing would change. I think we have the thing. <laughs> really, I don't think anybody would know I'm not there because we got this thing honed in and we're going to do what we're going to do. I, I could really stay in the locker room and the game probably wouldn't be any different. What did you think about having the longer communication time pre-snap with your well, players saw, on the field? I sort of, I don't know if we should put this in print, but I sort of cheated with that a little bit. For instance, I would I would say to Watka was a middle backer, I'd say the halfbacks cheated weak. The halfbacks coming on an arrow route. He'll be in the flat, move over, move over. And I'd move Watka over and Watka would cover him because I could see, you know, my... I've seen enough huddle breaks. I think I know what's going to happen before it happens. So I said, I don't know if I'm supposed to be telling Waka that or not, so I'll probably get But I would help them. Uh, how about this? I had a guy at number 52 lined up on the wrong side. This is a crucial third down, and he's on the left side. He's supposed to be on the right side. And I see the quarterback look over there, so my free safety is number 27. Uh is Micah. I goes, Micah, we busted. Get, get, get over the tackle. Get over the tackle. Blitz off the tackle side. He runs over there, fires, and we hit the guy for a minus one. Wow. So out of a play that out of a play that was supposed to be broken and backwards, you just you, you find a way to, to draw it up sandlot style and it works out. I promise you it would have been a ten, twelve yard game without a problem. And and uh, Micah uh, Hinneman is our safety. He's so smart he he's got he's got he hears me saying it runs right where I tell him and blitzes right where I tell him and bam, we knock the guy down. 
So I know that that, you know, coaches, so much of your job is preparation and game planning and making sure you're prepared and all that stuff. But one of those moments that you just described, something that has some improvisation to it, something that has a little bit of, um, you know, on the fly reaction, let's just go out and have fun because we're smart. Is that almost just equally as fun as when you draw up a perfect blitz, even though, you know, one took a lot of planning and the other one was just let's go out and do this? Oh, I, I think you're on the right track. I think, uh, you know, we, we, our, our players, uh, you know, our coaches, our defensive staff, we'd love to make the, make the change. And, the, you know, we say, you know, uh, it's kind of funny. The players will say, Coach, I think they know everything we're doing. And I'll say, that's totally impossible. You know why that's impossible? And the players will say, yeah, you're right. How could they know what we're doing when we don't know what we're doing? And we all laugh, you know? <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So as somebody who has coached in in a couple different leagues and, you know, spent the majority of your career in the NFL, when you looked at players in the XFL this season, what percentage of them do you think were good enough to be on a 90-man roster somewhere? And what percentage of them do you think were good enough to be on a 53-man roster somewhere? You're probably taking those numbers too far for me to equate, but I do say this. Uh, like, I had uh, a strong safety and a nickel safety uh, and a free safety. And if they were two inches taller, no one would ever cut them. So I got a great player here, but he's 5'9", where the NFL wants the same guy at six feet. Right. And being 5'9 doesn't bother me because I know he can still play. And I, I think that's probably the difference. Uh, uh, now, you know, we had two defensive linemen that played for six years, seven years, and started. You know, one started for the, the Broncos, one started for the Colts. So you got guys that have been there. And, uh, you know, we had Bobby Richardson started for the Saints. So, yep. I mean, you've got guys that have been there. Uh, the the difference with us is our pay scale, our treatment. That nobody's playing for the money. Nobody's playing to buy their mom a new house. Everybody's playing because they love freaking football. Now you can't beat a job like if somebody said you're going to do this till you die. You sign the contract. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, to me, what was always interesting when I covered the Packers for four years was, I, I guess maybe naturally, I kind of tended to gravitate toward some of the guys that were, you know, maybe the the last handful of guys on the roster or the core special teamers or the P-Squad guys. And I don't know, I, I there was something about sort of that, you know, yeah, we're still making good money, but we're not making superstar money. And so we're really just yeah. out here because we love, I don't know, there was always something interesting about that dynamic to me. And that kind of sounds like maybe that dynamic is applied on a broader scale in the XFL. If, if you coach in the XFL, everybody there is hoping they get a chance to go back to the NFL, every single player. But that's really, they, they all love the game. And the coaches love the game. Uh, uh, you know, our pay isn't to the point, you know, you know, it's, we, coaches aren't getting paid uh, NFL pay, either, but they love doing it. Uh, I hope it goes again. I don't know what their plan is, but I think we shocked everybody with our TV ratings. 
and I think the people like to watch it on TV. So, uh, for the sake of uh, the love of the people that play, I hope we crank it up one more time. That would be fun. That would be really cool. And I think, you know, it, it's always hard financially for any new startup to, to commit to multiple years, but obviously that was the XFL's plan. And I just think if there was a league that could last a couple of seasons back to back to back, I think that would be a really interesting sort of test case for whether or not there is a viable feeder league type connection between one and, and the NFL. In other words, if if you're starting to get five to seven to 10 to 12 guys a year that really are going from the XFL to success in the NFL, then that's the type of thing that, you know, in my opinion anyway, would seem to lend staying power to one of the smaller leagues. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think the big thing, you were just at the point where our fans at home games had figured out who their hero was on our team. <laughs> it does take That's, some time. It takes some time. So, like, it's our fourth, fifth game, and here's a kid, a young kid in the stands, uh, wearing a 45 jersey number uh, with with uh, that player's look at with Watka painted across his forehead. Right. Well, Two months ago, nobody in Tampa knew who Lucas Watka was, you know. Who, who was Lucas Watka? He was the high school coach in Texas, coaching the 15-year-olds. And now he's got a fan in the stands. And, and I think if we didn't get canceled, more fans would have found their hero on each team in every city. I believe that. I mean, that makes sense to me. That really does. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I live in Washington, D.C. now, so I watched some of their games on television, and it was the type of thing where, you know, even if there were some games where the attendance dipped a little, the the hardcore fans, you could tell, were really, really into it. And so, um, you know, I think it'd be fun if it came back again. I think the bigger question everybody has now is what's going to happen, like you mentioned earlier, with the NFL and, and college football. So, you know, drawing on your NFL experience, I'm curious, if, if teams have to go into training camp, without having had any OTAs, mini camps, any of that in the spring, how difficult would that be for coaches and players to just show up in August having not played in, in almost a year? Well, I think you just change, uh, you know, uh, your, your, your routine. You, you know, you're very careful that you don't want soft tissue injuries comes from not being prepared. So you, you change your reps, you know, rather than you getting uh, 42 reps in practice on defense, for 30 reps you're on defense, you know, you'd start off with getting 20 reps. Uh, you, you would be very careful uh, not not to pop, uh, pop the leg miss attendance, what we call soft tissue injuries, uh, and get them worked them back to shape. Of course, I was in it so long ago. We had six preseason games. That's true. In 74. And you also, so had, nobody, you also had two a days and sometimes even three a days. And, and nobody, by the way, came to camp in shape uh you you worked and played your way into shape so for us <laughs> for us guys that are 100 years old and older it's no problem this is what we did this is how we did it uh and and uh uh who's the famous coach of the minnesota vikings uh oh bud grant bud grant played his team in shape in the six preseason games that's wild. What did they do in the What did they do in the off season? Nothing. That's wild. And when they showed up, were they ready to go? Absolutely not. So that's not that big a problem. You just go back to the Bud Grants and 
the Jerry Glanville's of the world and say, well, we'll work this thing out until we're ready to go. What about uh, what about the drafting process? I know you weren't necessarily on the personnel side of things, but you've been a head coach for multiple teams in the NFL. Would a, would a pre-draft process where you can't necessarily bring guys into the facility like they tend to do now because you know of all the travel restrictions and everything with you know this COVID nineteen would would not being able to to meet with prospects as much as you want before the draft? Do you think that would cause any problems with evaluation? I think it would make the draft better. I think they are stuck in paralysis by overanalysis. Okay. Uh, How about this? I had to talk with Marty and talk with Marty and talk with Marty Schottenheimer because Drew Brees was an inch short. Look down your thumb, from your knuckle on your thumb to the end. You're going to forget about this guy for that little inch? This is I call, the NFL draft is is totally crazy. They've gone into so much study that they're paralyzed. Look at the play. Look at the film. The film doesn't lie. Can he play? Is is he playing football like you want a guy to play? We didn't bring any of our draft kids in, and we drafted everybody right from ground zero. And guess what? We ended up with everybody we wanted. Who was uh, when when you were head coach, either for the Oilers or the Falcons? What was who was one player that you guys drafted that you really, really wanted and turned out to be exactly what you thought? Well, it's kind of funny. We had there was a safety out of Portland State named Tracy Eaton, and our personnel guy didn't want him, so he wasn't fast enough. And I watched the film and watched the film. So the day before the draft, I flew June Jones out to time him. So June Jones went out to Portland, Oregon on the time, the safety that I wanted so bad. And so now it's draft day. We picked up the phone and I said to June, June, what did he run the 40th? And June says, what does he need to run, coach? (laughs) (laughs) Well, years later, Tracy and June told me he never timed him. But he played 10 years for us. Never timed him. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. Tracy Eaton was a was a seventh round pick in '88. Played for Houston, uh, the Phoenix Cardinals, and then also the Falcons. So you had him in both spots, right? You had him in Houston and Atlanta. I didn't want to go to war without him. That's pretty funny. What was it that so? So this is a good example. I like this. So what was it that you saw on tape that maybe the the personnel guys didn't, or vice versa? They don't rate full speed contact like I did. If you're full speed contact and you run a four seven, I'll take that over a guy that won't hit it, but it runs a four five. And this guy was full speed contact every freaking step. And he went. And you know what the fun? We're in Detroit playing Detroit, and now June Jones is with the Lions with the uh, Mouse Davis is there, uh, and they're running their offense. And now we come in and Tracy Eaton is still with me. And Tracy gets the pick and wins the game, and June's on the other side. I think that's awesome. That's pretty funny. Now, if only if only June had timed him, maybe he would have ended up somewhere else, right? <laughs> he probably would have never played. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. You know, stories like that are always so interesting to me. Are there any other yeah. players you can think of? Any sort of these these unsung, undersized guys from your career that you really loved, but you know, maybe if it wasn't for one lucky break, they wouldn't have been there. Does anybody come to mind? Well, Jimmy Carr and I would run. We would run the Detroit draft 
from round seven to 14. All the management and all the money people ran rounds one through seven. Well, you got to look up his name. So we find a tight end at Texas A&I named Hill. Okay. And nobody knows about it. We fight and fight and we draft this guy. You have to look up the round and be in the 70s. And he's all pro forever. It's pretty remarkable. Remember. Pretty remarkable. I can remember we, I got a guy named Jeff Donaldson in the seventh round from Colorado. That everybody's wondering why we got him. He lasted ten years and became the highest paid guy on Schottenheimer's Kansas City Chiefs secondary. And I got him in the seventh round. We got a guy named Horace King. Everybody says, "What do you got? Who's this Horace King?" We got a a running back out of Georgia, you know, like ninth round, and he brought back kickoffs and ran the ball like he was a first rounder. That's the fun of the draft. But don't go through this over analysis. It's all become paralysis. It's become too many people with too many computers. If you're drafting a guy with a computer, you got to get out of the business. If you can't look at the film and say, that's my guy, which is what we did in the XFL, we didn't get out of the computer. We watched the guy play. So that tight end you mentioned in the second round, that was uh, David Hill. And, uh, and he came from, it looks like back then the school was called... Texas A&M University Kingsville, which is now that's it. That's yep, it. and he uh, he ended up. It was a second round, 1976, pick number 46 overall. So about midway through the second round, uh, ended up playing. It looks like six or seven years for the Lions, and then another five or six years for the Rams, and went to two Pro Bowls. And, and guess what? I thought I was going to get fired for recommending him and fighting for him. <laughs> well, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, that's the fun of it. And why did everybody fight me? Well, Jer, he's not 6'4". And I said, so he's 6'2 and a half. I don't care. That's pretty cool. Over analysis and paralysis. So how often, I mean, I know this is a really hard question to answer, but, you know, I'm just curious. In in those kind of situations where, you know, maybe, maybe some of the coaches are even split and some of the scouts are split among them, how do those things get resolved? Does it really come down to just whoever has final say makes the call? Yeah, it's my job. You know, I used to tell everybody, uh, everybody thinks Belichick's a great coach. Uh, well, he makes the final pick. It's his choice. Everybody forgets Belichick got fired at Cleveland. Same guy. Well, he didn't get to make the picks. And Somebody so sometimes, sometimes that makes all the difference, huh? Well, you don't need as a head coach to make the picks, providing your guy you're working with is capable of making the picks. But if you've got a job where you can't make the picks, and by the way, the guy that is can't make the picks, you've got problems. You you know, bottom line is you, you keep your resume paper fresh. You're not going to be there long. That makes sense. We're we were in Atlanta. We didn't have one person in the, that could figure out who, what a corner needed to do to play. I was in Atlanta uh, the first time I was in Atlanta, not the second. First time in Atlanta, we didn't have a corner, and nobody in the whole organization knew how to go look for a corner. Well, then you got problems. Yeah, that that doesn't seem like a good uh, a good problem to have, especially if no. if you're of the type of mind like you said earlier, where the two things you need to win are quarters, uh, quarterbacks, and cornerbacks. You got to have those two, or you might as well go home. 
That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So I, I assume then in certain situations in the draft room or when it comes to free agents or whatever, I mean, tensions have to run high, right? There's got to be some, there's got to be some fiery discussions. Well, I was in Atlanta. I had the best secondary in all of football. My four guys are better than anybody that could play. Well, in the off season, uh, one guy goes to baseball, goes to St. Louis Cardinals, strong safety. Uh, Dion goes and signs with the 49ers, and McCarr goes somewhere like the Panthers. I got Scott Case coming back, so I got the four best guys. I got one guy coming back. Guess what? We took the first pick. <laughs> I would hope it's a DB. Lincoln Kennedy, 350-pound offensive guard. Well, you could have just lined him up at safety, right, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Rankin Smith says, Jerry, you'll learn to love him. I said, Rankin, call me collect when you tell me who he's going to cover. I got nobody that can cover. That's funny. That's funny. So how how did it turn out? Did they get you at least in the second and third round that year? No, we never got anybody. So that's how I ended up going to television. People <laughs> wonder, why, why are you on CBS? Because of that draft. Yeah, that's tough. That is tough. That is tough. Brian, but, who was my safety? Brian Jordan, was that his name? Uh, I lost Brian Jordan was my all-pro safety, great safety. Yeah, Brian my Jordan was the one that switched over to baseball, yep. Uh, how about this? They said, that was for $100,000. He wanted $100,000. So my great scouting department said, Jerry, don't worry. He'll be back. He can't hit the curve. He'll be here as soon as preseason's over. Well, 10 years later, I was watching him on TV, and he's playing for the freaking Atlanta Braves. They said, they must not be throwing him any curves because he's still there. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at Brian Jordan now. It looks like he, he spent 89, 90, and 91 with you guys, and then from 92 all the way to 2006, he was in baseball. And my scout, the great Kenny Herrock, who had – he had another brain that'd be lonesome. Said, "Don't worry, Jer. He'll be right back. He can't hit the curve." How many years did he fool the pro baseball if he couldn't hit the curve? How the hell did he last that long? Yeah, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. These kinds and of stories are always him. interesting. And I lost him for a hundred thousand dollars difference. So I asked uh, our, our money guy. He goes, "Give him the hundred thousand dollars. Pay it to him." It says. Oh, Jerry, you'll make another Brian Jordan. Your safety's up. I goes, I don't make Brian Jordans. I coach them. They come already made. That's pretty true. That's pretty true. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious for somebody that does put as much emphasis on cornerback play as as you do, and of course, in your defensive schemes over the years, you've had some good ones. What was it like to coach arguably the best corner ever in Dion? Well, it's kind of funny. I always shock people because they say. How does it feel, Coach, to maybe coach the best corner ever? And I just I say, you know what? It was fun coaching Lem Barney. <laughs> oh, man. Because <laughs> Lem Barney was Dion before Dion was Dion. Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit before uh, before I can remember, that's for sure. So I'll have to take your word on that one. But, you know, Lem Barney. Well, they're both, they're both in the Hall of Fame. I know. Seven-time Pro Bowler for Lem Barney, two-time first-team All-Pro. Uh, he led the NFL in interceptions in 67. So you got a case there. Uh, you got a case, no doubt. And they both did the same thing. Only three people in football has ever done it. And they, I coached both of them. They both drove me nuts. They would let their guy get open. 
And I thought after I coached Slim Barney, I'd never see it again. Well, there I go to Atlanta. I got a guy named Dion. And here's a guy running right down through the post, and there's nobody within 10 yards. And I go, oh, my gosh, how could that guy beat Dion? So the guy puts the ball up, and now Dion's got the ball. And they, he's probably never met Lamparney. And they both said the same thing. I says, you can't let him get that open. I says, Coach, if I don't let him get open, I won't get any work. Yeah, they won't, throw, they the won't throw him the ball. Exactly, yep. Well, both of those two were so good, they never would have seen one pass because they could have smothered coverage. You. Yeah. And they both let, we're playing the Vikings in Minnesota. We're going against Bud Grant. And, and Fran, the great Fran Tarkington, and he gets down the last play, and Fran Tarkington is throwing to a moderate shot in the post to beat us. And I look there, and a moderate shot is wide open. I go, oh, my gosh, we're going to lose it on the last play. And Barney's got the ball, just like Dion. And just like he told you he would, too. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Well, that's I one. Said, I don't mind you let him get open. Don't let him get that far open. Yeah, I, c- I can see how, as a coach, that would drive you crazy. Oh, I mean, Dion would let that guy get open that you knew he could catch him. Well, he could catch him. That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. I really appreciate you taking some time to share all these stories. This is a lot of fun, and uh, you know, I hope we we get to see you on the sideline again for another season in the XFL because it was great to to watch your guys and your defense and, and the whole league out there. So I I really appreciate you you sharing some time with me, Jerry. All right, but stress stress. I don't do the gang tackling. I don't do the chasing, and I don't do the great hitting. And I've been so fortunate wherever I go. We get guys that do that, and it's really all about them. So I hope some of you enjoyed that conversation. Jerry, to me, you know, I've interviewed him for a few different stories over the years, whether it was guys he used to coach, or I I remember I talked to him for a story about what it was like to be an interim head coach when he first took over the Oilers. And, uh, you know, it's he's just one of those guys that you could just listen to him tell story after story after story. So I know this was a longer podcast. I hope some of you enjoyed it. Uh, It was a lot of fun just catching up with him and and letting him go and and tell stories and and narrate and, and do what he does best. So Jerry Glenn, uh, a fascinating conversation. Thank you all very much for listening. Um, as always, you know the, the intro music I carried over from my last podcast because I liked it so much. That's Jazz Addict's intro by Cosimo Fogg. So we appreciate him creating that and sharing it copyright free for anyone who wants to use it. We're going to try and do this maybe once a week. I don't really have a set schedule for when this is going to come out. It'll depend on you know who I can get to join me and how much you guys like it or dislike it. But for now, you know, thank you so much for for tuning into this one. It's great to be back talking with you guys and podcasting and and again giving you something that I hope will brighten your day at a time when everybody could use a little bit of that. So until the next time, I hope you have a great rest of your day, a great rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. 